is in our culture today and in our world and in our churches, I think there's a great deal of confusion about what it really means to be a man and what it means to act like a man and uh, really primarily and more specifically uh, what the role of a man is uh, in our marriages and in our homes. Um, now, I realize that uh, by my mere uh, suggesting that there might be some confusion concerning this topic and subject of manhood, that there might be some men that feel a little bit uncomfortable with that and might feel even a little bit defensive. Uh, in fact, there might be kind of a desire for you to puff out your chest and in a very low voice, which I don't have, to say, hey, listen, man, I know what being a man is all about. Nobody's got to tell me uh, what being a man is. I'm 100% American male, okay? Uh, so don't you tell me how to be a man. I am a man, all right? And to that response, I would then respond or at least ask this question, uh, how do you know? Uh, in other words, how have you come in your own personal uh, life, how have you come to learn to define what a man really is and what a man is supposed to be about? In other words, whose definition are you working off of? I, the reason I say that is because you need to understand there are a plethora of different ideas of what manhood really looks like and what it's all about. Um, we see that uh, in from culture to culture. There's a different idea of what, what men are supposed to be doing and what they, what they look like. For example, if you're in Nassau County, uh, if you're a man, you're a man's man, right? Uh, you are a man's man. You like to wear flannel, Wrangler jeans, work boots, and for fun, you like to work, watch football all day Saturday and all day Sunday, all right? That's a man, all right, in our culture. But if you swing even just south of the state in Florida, down in the Miami area, uh, it's not so much about being a man's man, uh, down there as much it is about being metrosexual, okay? Now, that's not some perverted term, just so you know. Uh, it's more about men are really more defined by slick hair, being clean-shaven, wearing a silky shirt, skinny pants, shiny shoes. And for fun, they like to go and dance to the beat of the rhythm of the night. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's how you define a man kind of in South Florida. So you kind of see there's some, some big and huge differences of ideas. You know, the media, even in the media, you see, especially entertainment media, you see a lot of distinguishing factors and different pictures of what being a man is. On one side, you have this rugged, uh, rugged individualism uh, where men want nothing to do with being tied down to one woman or really to have to raise a family, but rather he likes to ride the streets and be free on his Harley, uh, that's what really being a man is. So then you see completely on the other side, you see kind of the wimpy man, right? And basically all he does is work nine to five. He lives in the suburbs. Uh, he buttons his collar all the way up. And basically he's, he's oblivious to everything that's going on in his home. And his children and his wife walk over him like a doormat. And they demand of him just to be able to bring home uh, the bacon. And they'll dictate how the rest of his life is supposed to be. And so we have pictures in Hollywood and the media like that. Now I know and I realized this morning that it would be very easy for you and I to really sit back and to be able to blame our culture and to blame the media uh, for the confusion that we find concerning this particular subject matter. But I want to let you know that that would be just far too simple 
and I think it would be really far too shallow and not really get at the core of what the real problem is and the cause of the confusion. Really, I believe that the cause of the confusion in our world today over what a man ought to be really stems back to sin. Sin is what has really clouded our minds and distorted these things. You know, culture has distorted manhood. The media has exploited manhood. But the true confusion is caused by sin in the heart of each and every one of us. And so with that said, you know, the question that really that we have to raise then is if it's distorted in the culture in which we live and in the media in which we live, then how do we come to a real definition, a true definition? How do we come to understand really what being a man is all about, what it looks like and what our role is in the world that God has placed us? Well, the, uh, the answer should be obvious, should it not? It's where we go to find all unadulterated truth, the word of God. That's where we go to find out what it means, gentlemen, to be a man. And where we go specifically in the Word of God, it's throughout, but I think the best place to go at least to begin is in the beginning, in the beginning of Genesis, in the first couple chapters, one, two, and three. Because there I believe that it spells out really what God had intended the purpose of man to be in the primary role that he has given them within the, within the home before the fall. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to address that. But let me give you just kind of an overview just very quickly of some things that we're just going to touch on this morning. And we're going to find these things and see these things evident in the Word of God. The first thing we just want to kind of take a look at is, is we're going to look at the equality uh, of man and woman, that they're equal. And then what we want to do is we're going to ultimately look at the distinctions between man and and woman, even though they're equal, there's clear differences that the Word of God lays out in the Word, specifically in the area of roles within the relationship itself. And then what I want to do at the very the latter part uh, of this, and want to camp out on just a little bit, is we want to focus primarily on the on the major role of man, of the husband, of the father in the home. Uh, we're not spending nearly as much time on a lady's role. We're going to hit it, but we're not going to camp on it. That's why this is about biblical manhood, all right? So stay tuned later. If we get to a series on biblical womanhood, uh, then that's your time to sweat. Okay, ladies? All right? And so right now, we're, that's pretty much the course for today. So let's look, first of all, in chapter 1. And what we're going to try to take a look at is the, equal, the equality that there is for man and woman, that both of them are equal in the sight of God. And what I want to do is I want to draw your attention, first of all, and I want you to understand really what Genesis 1 is really all about. Uh, it is Moses that is writing this chapter. He's the author not only of Genesis, but the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And remember, he's writing, get this, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, what that means is these are just not merely his words. God's using his mind and his words and his hand to write, but the Holy Spirit is moving him along in such a way that the words that are written are the very words of God. So the truths that are listed here that we find in these chapters are God's truths, okay? And so they stand forever as true. And so what we find is what in chapter 1, what he's really trying to do uh, here, Moses, is just giving us this kind of overall picture. 
He's painting in very broad strokes the creation account is what he's doing. He's not giving us a great deal of detail. What he's doing is he's just kind of in broad strokes saying, hey, listen, on the first day, God created this. On the second day, God created this. On the third day, God created this. And so on and so forth until finally at the end of chapter one, he kind of just, he kind of gives kind of this, uh, this, um, this, this big section, this large section of time and portion and words to really the pinnacle of God's creation, the pinnacle of mankind, the pinnacle, the, the, the creation of man and woman. And so what we see is, look at verse, chapter 1 and verse 26, if you will. I'm going to read through this, then I'll explain it. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds uh, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then look at verse 8. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, why is it, what is he trying to get across here? I think what he's trying to get across in these verses is the equality of man and woman, male and female. I believe that that's why he's setting this out. Now, why is it that man and and woman are equal and they should be viewed as equal? They are viewed as equal because, first of all, because both man and woman were created in the Imago Dei. They were created in the image of God. So both of them, not just the man, but both of them were created in this way. And what do we mean by being created in the image of God? We hear that phrase, and there's a lot of different definitions. People define it in different ways. But let me give you a simplistic definition, but I think it's right on. The image of God in man is the soul's personal reflection of God's righteous character. To image God is to mirror his holiness. So catch this, the Bible tells us that the heavens and earth are declaring the glory of God. Everything we see around us tells us something about God, how awesome he is and how powerful he is. He says, but man, the creation of man alone is unique and greater than all else because it has the unique ability to do what? To demonstrate the glory and the righteous character of God. Nothing else can create it can do that. Why? Because man has a living soul that God has placed within him. So he's given a specific opportunity and a, and a responsibility where, where men and women are above all other creation because of that image. So we see because they're created in the image, both man and woman, it makes them equal. But we also see that they are equal because of what God allows them to do, what he places them over. Above them is God, and then below them uh, is the creation. In verse 28, it says again, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. He gave them the right to rule over all the rest of his creation, to look after it, to enjoy it, and to basically uh, uh, have dominion over everything that God has ultimately created. Now, when we talk about equal, the idea that he's getting across is that man and woman are equal in value and worth and in spirituality. And so what the Bible is teaching us here is this, is that for a man or a woman, there's never, there's never the right time for a man to in any way, shape, or form demean a woman. 
And, and, and that means that he gives us no space for him to think in his mind that a woman is somehow inferior to him in worth and value. But catch this, ladies, it also gives no woman the right to feel inferior in value and worth to a man. It rips all that stuff away, takes it completely off the table, and he says they are equal in spirituality, they are equal in value and worth, which means this. It means, men, especially some of us that were raised in the South, that if we were taught or raised either through religion or through society or through family or anything, that it's okay to look down upon a woman or to devalue a woman in any way and have any sense of superior, superiority at all, the Bible says that you yourself are setting yourself in, 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 in opposition to God and the purpose that God has for a woman's life. So if you speak to a woman in a demeaning way, if you act to her in a demeaning way, or if your thoughts are in a demeaning way, you've set yourself up directly against God. That's what the Word of God teaches. And so here what we find is the emphasis in the beginning, at the birth of creation, we see God making a point. And what's his point? Men and women, they are equal in value and worth. But he doesn't stop there. In the beginning of the church, at the birth of the church in the New Testament... God chooses to emphasize this very same point once again. What was it at the birth of the church? What was God doing? He was beginning a new creation. He created, the fall came, man fell into sin, and then what he began to do? He began to undo the curse and a recreation by creating you and I new unto God, giving us a new spirit unto God in the New Testament. That's what we see at the birth of the church through salvation, through faith in Jesus Christ. And what we find in that particular passage in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 through 29, Paul emphasize, emphasizes the equality between man and woman. There he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, He's not suggesting here in this particular text, this, this scripture passage, he's not suggesting that all of a sudden we become neutral and there's no man and woman physically and there's no distinction. But what he's saying is, hey, look, there should never be in the church or in your life or in your home any kind of division or dissension based on superiority or inferiority. So what we see in both the beginning and the birth of creation in the beginning in the birth of the church, that God makes a solemn statement and a solemn truth, men and women, they are indeed and in fact equal. Do you got that? This is the first thing he wants to present here. You've got to grasp hold of that. The second thing he says, though, is even though they are equal, they're different. They're equal, but they're different. Ladies, would you admit that you're different than your husband? Men, would you admit that your wife is different than your husband? Men say, amen. Okay? All right, I mean, I'm not even going to go down that path, but I'm just glad that my wife doesn't look like me. I'm just, I, I, I'm appreciative of that. And so what we find is, and so is she, I'm sure. I'm sure she's appreciative of that as well. And so what we find is, remember in Genesis chapter 1, just follow me, Genesis chapter 1, how, he, how he, was he viewing creation from afar? 
Almost like he was going in an airplane. He's looking down on creation, and everything just is kind of real tightened together. And what he sees, he sees man and woman. And you know how from, the, from, from way up at 35,000 square feet, you look down and everything looks the same? That's the view he just gave us. Now in chapter 2, he comes right down close, and he zooms in. In the beginning, we see this just kind of broad picture of man and woman in their equality. Now he's going to zoom in and specifically speak about how they were created and draw out the distinctions that are between man and woman. So he gives us a close-up view as he begins to discuss this. Now, this is where a lot of people begin to have some problems because the question that we have to, that immediately arises is this, can two people be equal but different? And what I would suggest, suggest to you is that's where the feminist today has a really hard problem. They believe, and the world believes, and a lost world believes, is the only way for you to be equal in value and worth is for you to be almost identically the same. And so what a lost world has done is they begin to blur the lines. Guys, it's okay to look like girls. Girls, it's okay to look like guys. Girls, it's okay for you to act like a guy. Guys, it's okay for you to act like a girl. And they are trying to mush this together because they say, look, if we are truly equal, then we have to be sameness. Do you got that? But that's not how God created us. He created us with great diversity and great differences, but God sits there and says, doesn't matter what you make, doesn't matter how much, how little, what color your skin is, where you're from, you're equal in the sight of me, in value and in worth in each and every one of you. And so what I want to do is, at this particular point, uh, the question is, how are they primarily different? Well, we know physically they're different, but what we see in the text of Scripture is this, is that they're different primarily in the roles in which God has assigned them. And I'm going to say this, and immediately the men are going to feel weird, and then the wives are going to feel maybe angry. But let me tell you the distinctions that the Bible lays out very clearly. The role of a man is to be the head. The role of a woman is to be the helper. That's the two things. So for men, they are called to, from the beginning of creation, they are called to headship, the leading of the family. Now let me give you a definition of headship. All right? This is Wayne Grudem's uh, definition. He says, in, uh, in the partnership of two spiritual, equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. Did you get that? Even though they're equal, even though they're exactly the same, God has given the, not the only, but the primary responsibility for a man to lead his family in the direction and on the course of glorifying God in everything they do within the home. Did you guys got that? That's his primary role. And what is a wife's? Very simply, to help him get there, to help him succeed to use everything she can to follow his leadership, use her unique gifts and abilities to come alongside and to be able to help him. Now, before you get really, really ticked off, because when you sit there and go, oh, so the guy's the head and we're the help? We're the help, all right? Before you start getting all cantankerous about that, all right? Let me just say this. What is more demeaning, the helper or the one who needs help? You got that? Are, are you guys, some of you are driving me, with me, right? It is not demeaning to say, hey, I'm a helper. I need to come and help this guy along. And the guys are sitting there going, man, I'm headed this direction. I need help. You, you got that? 
And so he is, to, let's make it very clear, he, men and women, very equal, but he holds the primary responsibility to erect his wife, his family, and everything about the home in a God-honoring, God-glorifying direction to move everything in that thing, and that's his primary responsibility. Now, I don't expect you just to take my word for that. In fact, if you did, I'd be a little bit disappointed in you. Because the question is, all right, Brother Mike, well, that's what you say, but is that what the Bible teaches? Is that the clear teaching of the Word of God? Now, in the last just couple minutes, brief minutes, what I want to do now that we've established the equality of the man and, 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 and man and woman and the differences between a man and woman, now what I want to do is I want to focus more and show you in the Word of God in three specific events in the, New Test, in the Old Testament, in the first three chapters of specifically of why I believe that that is the primary role for a man that God has given them from the beginning and desires for you and I today. Let me, let me give you three different events that man's primary responsibility is to lead his family in the God-glorifying direction. The first is, the first event is the created order, the created order. Now, look at chapter two and look at verse seven. We're gonna jump around just a little bit. Verse seven says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, we got that? You guys clear on that? All right, he creates man. But did you notice that he doesn't create woman at the same time that he creates man? Did you notice that? Now, part of you would begin to think, well, if he wanted to remove all doubt of man and woman's equality, he would go ahead and he would just create them at the same exact time and remove any kind of doubt. And I suppose you could argue that, but remember, hasn't he already removed all doubt in chapter one by saying that both man and woman are created in the image of God and that they were given the both right to have dominion over the fish of the sea? So he, he's telling us something different. He's trying to draw the distinction between the roles here between a man and a woman because he could have created her the same way and at the same time, but he has a completely different plan. Now look at chapter two in verse 18. He says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So don't be mad at me. Be mad at the creator. Don't be mad at the creator. But, but he's, he says, hey, I, he needs, he needs, did you, he needs, okay, a helper. So I'm going to make for him a helper. Now, you would think when I'm reading this, and I know my mind is weird, but as I'm reading through this text, I would immediately think that he's going to get right into the making of the woman. But he doesn't. He, he, he kind of gives this little interlude all of a sudden. And then what he says is, he says in verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all his livestock and to the birds and to the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, then he all of a sudden jumps back in and gives us greater detail of how the woman is created. What, what's going on in here? He's trying to get the man to understand that there's something lacking here. He's getting him to the point, he says, listen, he needs a helper, but here's the deal. He doesn't get it yet. So what God has him do, and think about this, this had to take some time, all right? He has every couple of animals come by him, and there he is naming them. Now, he's not just sitting there just haphazardly and ambiguously just giving them names. Uh, that's a Flazer snot, and that's a this or that. What he's doing is, is when he's looking at these names, he's looking, he's looking at the nature of these animals. 
And he's giving them a name that is fitting to each one of these. And as he sees them goes by, he might be slow as most men are, but all of a sudden they're going by and he goes, man, there's a male and there's a female. There's a male and there's a female or a male and a something else. I don't know what that is, but they're different. And they complement each other in an incredible, glorious, wonderful way. And by the time he gets done naming all of the animals, right, he gets to the end and he realizes, I don't have that. I don't feel complete. I'm not in the same kind of relationship with another creation, another creature, in the same way that they are. And so he sees his need. And so what does the Bible teach there? God said he begins to perform surgery. He comes out. He gives him the anesthesia. He says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took out his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And he says that then the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and he brought her to him. So this is pretty cool. He goes to sleep takes out the rib, he wakes up in the recovery room. God sits there and goes, you, you okay? Everything good? Yeah, I'm great. He goes, hey, I got something. He kind of hid the woman, and then he says, I got something to show you, right? And he says, oh, what is it? And then he brings out Eve, right? The woman. And she comes walking in, and he's like... <laughs> and God says, God says at this point, what do you think of that? What do you think of this one? And he goes, whoa, man, whoa, man, whoa, man. All right, so he, he comes, and he's blown away by this, and she comes in, and there's this huge event that's going on. But why is it? Did God create her second because he made a mistake? Because he sat there, and he said, look, it's not right. We need to, we, we, we need to go to plan B. We need to add this woman. No, he was doing it to tell us something, and this is what he was telling us. He was telling us that there is significance in firstness. He came first, and because he came first, it means that he is going to have a primary responsibility within this this relationship of the family, between the marriage and with the family. And so you sit back, and and maybe you're sitting there going, well, Brother Mike, I, I don't know that. That might be just a little bit of a stretch. That interpretation there just doesn't quite seem right. Well, let me let Paul interpret this for you. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul is writing the pastoral epistles. Very quickly, in the pastoral epistles, he's writing to the people, he's writing to Timothy, telling them how this is supposed to be done, church is supposed to be done, how it's supposed to function, how it's supposed to go about, who's supposed to lead, who's supposed to submit, all these different types of things. And so within it, this is what he says. He says something that, that got me basically fired from my last job, so let me tread lightly here. I'm not joking. Is that... Is that the, the, he says in, in 1 Timothy, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach a man or to have authority over him. And people freak out. They all ah, set their head on fire. Are you saying that we're not equal? Are you saying they can't teach? Are you saying they're dumb? No, God's not saying any of that. And so what he does is he says, I don't allow that to be able to happen. Now, why is it? Well, feminists would say, and they write this, is because he's a chauvinist pig. That's why because he lived in an old, ancient, out-of-date culture. That's why he's making this statement. But the Word of God makes very clear, 
Paul comes and he says, the reason I'm not allowing a woman, and that doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that women can't teach you something. I've had many godly women in my life that have poured. What he's talking about in that context is that a regular, consistent basis, a man is supposed to be leading the spiritual well-being, not only of the body of his home, but also the church as well. So they're supposed to be setting the course. But, but why is Paul doing this? Paul gives his reason. He says there, for Adam, listen to this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. He says the reason that men need to be leading is because of God's created order. He created them first. He created them to do so. Got that? So how do we know that God, or the primary purpose for a man is to lead his family in a God-glorifying direction because of the created order. Second event we see is God entrusting his word to man. Now look at chapter two in verse 15. The Bible says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now catch this. There's two parts to this. What God is doing is he's setting a boundary for man. And it's funny because we don't like boundaries. We think that's an unloving, uncaring thing. But God is always setting boundaries for his people, even when they haven't sinned yet. He says, your truest way for you to be happy and joyful and complete is in submission to me to follow me and to obey me. If you don't, you'll be shipwrecked. You'll be ruined. So he's telling them, this is, this, these are words of life and death. You want to live? Man, go out. Eat all from all the trees Uh, uh, of the garden. I've prepared them for you. This is to be a blessing for you. But do not eat the tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when you read through this and you read very carefully, these are incredibly powerful words, words of life and death. But did you notice somebody is absent at this particular point? Who is it? Eve. Eve hasn't even been created yet. She's not even on the scene yet. And then after she's created in verse 21 following, we don't find anywhere that we're finding God reiterating his word or reoralizing his word once again to her saying, hey, listen, now I've created you. Now I need to sit down with you and make sure you understand these all important words, these words of life and death, that you understand how you're supposed to live. God doesn't do that. Why? And here's what I would simply suggest, and I think it's clear for me is I would, I would go as far to say is because of, of the man's firstness, he had given him the responsibility to reoralize the word, the life-giving word, and to set the parameters for his home and for his wife and to treat her and to teach her in that way. That was his responsibility. Now, how did he do? Well, I think at least he did it. How well he did, I don't know, because later on when the serpent comes, he says he's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now notice this, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She adds something to it. In the mind of ease, there's some, there's some confusion here. Now, I'm not going to blame everything on Adam, but I'm just saying there, it demonstrates two things. It demonstrates men. You may have never thought of it this way, but you were the primary preacher and priest of your home. You're the under-shepherd underneath Jesus Christ to lead and direct and to teach the word of God to your wife 
into your family. You were to be able to know it, and you were to be able to reoralize it, and you were to be able to set the boundaries, not your boundaries, God's boundaries. And to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This, very clearly, I want you to know, children, what God's boundaries are. I want you to know how you can live in joy, how you can live in faith in him, and you can in a fulfilling life for him. Here's what the word of God says, and you begin with the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where you begin. And so the Bible says very clearly for two ways, we know that it's man's primary responsibility to direct his family in God-glorifying ways how? Well, first of all, because of his created order. Secondly, uh, because of his entrusting his word to man. And then there's a third one. And the third is God's in, uh, interrogation of man. God's interrogation of man. Now, notice this. This is interesting. We know that the woman blew it, right, man? Just joking. All right, she, she fell to the temptation, right? I, I'm speaking truth. All right, but the serpent said, woman, he says, will you not surely die for God knows? And he goes through this in, in the Bible says in verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And then notice this, and she also gave some to her husband who was also her and he ate. So not only was she the first to sin in that specific direction, but she also leads astray her husband, okay? Now, at this particular point, God is going to approach them and confront them with their sin. Now, if I was writing this story, here's how I do. And then God came back. They covered, you know the story. They covered themselves up because now they realize they're naked. Now they have a reason to cover up. And so they were ashamed. They were ashamed in front of each other. They were ashamed because of God, because of their sin. And so all of a sudden, you expect to read, I think God came to Eve. And he said, and he confronted her. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, rather, in the word of God in verse 8, and he says, and they heard the sound, or excuse me, in verse 9, he says, but the, but the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree in which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, of course, we know this, and we're going to get into this next week. The woman who you gave to me with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. What's he doing? He's passing the buck, right? But who does God come to first? The man. She did it, but he's held primarily responsible. Now, here's the question. Can she do whatever she wants without absolutely no, no confrontation from God? No. God comes, and she's responsible. But men, say with me, who is primarily responsible for the direction and the, and the, and the glory seeking of the family and the leading of the family? Who's primarily responsible? Man. This truth is so evident in the word of God. It's even evidenced in the fact that when the Bible teaches about all men have fallen into sin, it says that we are not in Eve, but we are in whom? We are in Adam. Adam who was the head of his family, not only his immediate family, but he's also the head of the entire human race, the family of the human race, right? He is our representative. When he fell, we all fell. We all pay the consequence of what the leader ultimately has done or not done, and he holds back. We look back at him. The sin came through Adam. In the word of God, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, the scripture says this, for as in Adam all died, why? He's not the one that sinned first. Well, because he's primarily responsible. 
He says, so also, now here's the good news, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now there's the beauty. We're all dead in our sins because of Adam, because of the one who represented all of us, our leader, our father. But guess what? God sent another one, Jesus Christ, who is now the head of the bride of his church, Jesus Christ, and now he is our representative. And as all of us came to die in our sins through Adam, we all can come spiritually alive and be forgiven of our sins through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the bridegroom of the church. Man, that's beautiful. You know, as I sit back and I think about this, and here's James Dobson, I think, puts it a good way. He sums all this together. And he says, a Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then the financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sunday, God holds that man to blame. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. Now the question is, where do we go with this? The whole goal for this first sermon, and I hope that it's it's just that you walk away, with an unbelievable clarity and burden in your hearts, man, for perhaps the first time in your entire life to sit there and go, my goal and purpose for being created is to glorify God, but the way that he has done that is to be the primary spiritual leader to set the course for my family so that in all we do, our entertainment, our finances, fun, direction, time we spent, places we go, that they're all set in a God-honoring way for me and my family. Now, in light of that, I think there might be four groups, and I need to go quickly on this. Four groups, I think, of men that we might have here. First of all, we probably have the proud. And in my heart, I could only imagine that there are probably some men that are sitting there going with a smirk on their face, that's right, I'm the leader. I'm the spiritual leader. I make sure that our family's in the house of God on Sunday. And the thing that I worry most about you is it's immediately, pro- immediately evidence to me because of your pride uh, that you have no idea what servant, servant, being a servant to your family is all about. He's not talking about being domineering to your family. He's talking about servant leadership, that you humble yourself and you fight for the bottom for the well-being and spiritual well-being of your family. And if there's any angst of pride where you would sit there and boast and go, I'm the man of our home, then what I'm suggesting is you don't have the appropriate view of the worth and value of a woman and you don't have an appropriate view of what kind of servant God has called you to be. There's a second group and some of them are sitting there and they're, they're guilty. They're not feeling guilty. They're just guilty. They're confident. But here's what they're doing. They are indeed leading their family. And let's understand something. Every man in here is leading his family. The question is, is where are you leading them? I think one of the biggest problems that we have in churches is that we have some men that come to church and it's great, but the truth of the matter is their entire life, all they're really doing and all they're seeking and living for is financial prosperity and that's the direction that they're leading their family. It's all about the dollar. It's all about the money. It's all about getting a good education and a good job and having a good house and having a good retirement and having all those things. All those are underneath that spiritual desire. But the truth of the matter is, for the majority of men, we are guilty for leading our families in the same exact way as a lost unbeliever does for the almighty dollar and for success. 
I think there's a third group of men here, and that is for some, they just feel hopeless. I know some of you wives are sitting there and go, man, I just wish my husband would get it on the phone. I just wish my husband would be like that. I just wish he would be leading. And the truth of the matter is, is for some of you, your husbands are dying inside. They don't want to show it. They don't want to admit it. But the truth of the matter is, is even some of those who are trying to lead, they feel like a complete and utter failure. Just feel like a failure in doing it. And here's the deal. Even the guys that I know that are seeking to do all they can, there's just this sense of hopelessness, just sitting there going, God, I'm just doing everything I can, but God, everything, I'm just not the man that I've called to be. And I want to let you know, a part of that is healthy. But it shouldn't keep you down and defeated. What it should cause you to do is to sit there and say, I can do all things through Christ Jesus. And it's to cause you to take that burden, the burden, the right burden that you should feel maybe for the very first time in your life and to sit there and say, Jesus, I can't bear this burden, Jesus. Come. And he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me. I'm going to share. I'm going to come right alongside of you. I'm going to lift that up so that you're not crushed underneath it. You follow me. Follow me. I'll show you the way. I'll show you the way. Then I think there's a fourth group, and my heart goes out to this group because not everybody in here has young school-aged children or even some of those, that are, your, your children are much older. They're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. Maybe they're 32, 40 years old, and, and maybe you've been married for 20 or 30 years, and right now, man, you're just broken because the reason you're broken is you're sitting there going, I've, uh, I've wasted my life, man. I've blown it. I've blown it. can't do anything about it. I lived my life, so I had my one shot, and I just wasn't the man that I ultimately needed to be. And let me suggest something to you. If you still have a wife, you still have to lead. If you still have a child, no matter how old they are, are they ever going to cease being your child? You have the opportunity, even now in their older straight, to probably lead them in a different way but to lead them by your witness and by your example of your submission to the glory of God. And so where do we begin this morning? I think the only place for us really to begin this morning is by humbling ourselves, man. And I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna pray in just a moment. And of course, for all who are sitting here this morning and you're like, listen, I'm lost. People have been sharing with me. I want to let you know that you can be saved today. Your sins can be forgiven and you could be made right with God today by repenting of your sin and placing faith in Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something. There are a whole group of men right here that I pray that right now that you are underneath that burden and you're sitting there and the only thing you know what to do as I study this passage is to come to God and pray. Come to God and say, God, forgive me for where I failed. God, and I come in that with all the strength, your strength, would you fill me with your spirit as I each day submit to you to become the man of God that you've called me to do. And God, my church right now is going to come alongside of me and they're going to work with me and walk me through this. God, will I never turn back but to sit there and say, I will be that man that you've called me to be. Man, that's where the call is today. Will you start with repenting? Will you continue by calling out for the strength and obedience to God? and say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand to your feet. Jonathan's coming and he's leading. We're going to...